Welcome to Hunter Plus, a historical overview of the most important people, events, and ideas of the last 3,000 years. In today's episode, Mike will be focusing on the King James Version of the Bible, which celebrated its 400th birthday 10 years ago. So perhaps you saw one of the dozen books that were released at the time, or skimmed the special National Geographic magazine that came out on it, or watched one of the many TV specials held about it. If you did, you already know that the release of this version of the Bible was not only an important theological moment, it was important for political and cultural reasons as well. Mike will be explaining all of this and more in today's episode of 100 Plus. After this week, 100 Plus will be taking a short break so Mike can prepare for the upcoming fall episodes. Look for new episodes launching beginning the first week of September. In an article about the King James Version of the Bible, Dr. Ryan Reeves, an associate professor of church history at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, notes that the popular retelling of history tends to be filled with some myths. For instance, the idea that George Washington cut down his father's cherry tree. No belief among real historians that that happened. Uh, We've been told that uh, C-section was named after Julius Caesar. Uh, Not true. Uh, We're told that Columbus discovered America. He didn't. Uh, Not only were there people living uh, here in North America when he arrived, but he landed in the Caribbean. Um, Reeves then goes on to say, and there are seven commonly believed myths about the King James Version of the Bible. And then he lists three. The first is that that King James was trying to eradicate the Puritans, The second is that the Bible was authorized by the king. And the third uh, is that the 1611 version of the King James Bible was not changed for 300 years. Now, I am indebted to uh, Dr. Reeves for all kinds of insights about church history. Uh, I'm a fan, but when I heard him say that, I laughed and I thought, "Uh, Ryan, you need to get out more. Those myths are not commonly believed. Uh, about the King James Version of the Bible. Most people know almost nothing about the King James Version of the Bible. In order for those myths to be commonly believed, people would have to have a lot more information about it. So um, let me add, I think it's unfortunate that those myths are not believed because I would like people to know more about the King James Version. It's an important story and pretty interesting, and today it's what we're turning to. So let me start by saying that the King James Version of the Bible, also called the KJV uh, and the Authorized Version, and just the King James Bible, uh, it's an English translation of the Scriptures, which was published in 1611 under the auspices of King James I of England. In today's lecture, I want to explain the politics behind this translation. I want to look at its formation. I want to look at its impact across several fronts, and I want to push you again to read the book. Um, For reasons I will note um, in this lecture, it wouldn't kill you to read the King James Version of the book, uh, although I typically recommend more contemporary and and more readily readable, more easily accessible translations. Um, In today's podcast, We're focused on the drama and the intrigue behind the version of the Bible. I'm not really commenting um, on the bigger, broader, weightier issues of the Bible itself. The fact that the Bible is the Word of God and that it is uh, divinely inspired and that it is sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joint and marrow, 
able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, that we are uh, to study, to present ourselves workmen, approved unto God, who have no need to be ashamed because we rightly handle the word of truth. I'm not talking about the Bible in that sense today. We're looking at it a little bit more, his, the, the translation, this particular translation from a historical and a literary impact. But a big part of my job, a big part of my motivation is to get you to read the book. Um, so I will come back to this at the end and say, hey, look, if you're not reading the Bible every day, then uh, you are missing out. So um, you need to read the book. And by the way, um, the, 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 the Greek word for Bible is the word uh, biblios, and that is what we get the, our English word Bible from, but it just means books. So what I'm encouraging you to do is to read the book, or because there's 66 books in the book, to read the books. Anyway, as we get started, here's some interesting things to know about the King James Version. It's the most popular English version in the world. When English speakers reach for a Bible, 55% of them reach for the King James Version. It far eclipses the number two translation, which is the NIV, at 19%. Uh, number two, the King James Version is so dominant in some people's lives that it is what they assume the real Bible is. Um, I have been told that there are 450 different English translations of the Bible. Uh, I, I don't think I believe that that's true. I think that maybe there's 450 different editions of the Bible, but that not only includes different translations like the King James Version or the NIV or the TNIV or the ESV or the NASB or, you know, the, and the paraphrases like uh, the Message or the Living Bible before that. Uh, I assume that also includes the Student's Bible and this Study Bible and the Bible for addicts and the Bible for business people and the Bible for new moms and the Bible for all those. I can't come up with 450 translations into English of the Bible, um, but um, it is it, the King James Version is the one that many people think sounds like the Bible is supposed to sound with all the these and thous and all the sort of stilted uh, ancient British language. So you, have, <laughs> there's a joke, um, and it says that hey, the King James Version of the Bible was good enough for the Apostle Paul. So it's good enough for me. I, I, I now think that I probably need to announce my jokes because uh, they, my humor is not always appreciated and not always understood to be humor. Um, so let me just say, that was a joke. The, the King James Version of the Bible comes around in 1611. So, and it's in English. The Apostle Paul would have been fluent in Hebrew and probably Greek and Aramaic and some other languages, but not English. So the King James Version of the Bible is not the original Bible. Please understand that. Uh, people might think it sounds like the Bible, but it's not the Bible. Number three, you should know that the KJV has had, if not the most powerful influence in the formation of the English language, at least a massive influence on it. When people talk about the two greatest sources of influence in the development of English, it tends to be Shakespeare and the King James Version of the Bible. And of the two, 
the King James Version wins because Shakespeare would have heard the King James Version of the Bible. Now, uh, you might say, well, if you know Shakespeare, you know that he died in 1616, so five years after the King James Version was published, so you go, there isn't any way that he was influenced that profoundly by the King James Version because it doesn't come out until he's just about uh, dead. But in fact, the King James Version of the Bible is going to be, uh, while it's its own new work, it's going to borrow heavily from existing, some of the existing English translations. It's not the first English tr translation. Um, it's one of the first. I mean, you, you know, 100 years before the King James Version comes out, uh, people are still getting in trouble for, I mean, there was a, the, like the, the rector of St. Paul's Cathedral uh, gets deposed. He can no longer preach because he he made the mistake. The, he committed the grave error of translating the Lord's Prayer into English, and that was uh, considered, um, you know, uh, a pox. He couldn't do that. And of course, Wycliffe and before Tyndale and before that, Wycliffe were put to death uh, for translating the Bible into English. So it wasn't that long ago. Uh, Tyndale was fifteenth, uh, sixteenth century. It wasn't that long ago that people were getting put to death for uh, translating the Bible into English. But there were some translations out there at the time the King James Version came along. Tyndale's, uh, which is math, uh, about 80-85% of the King James Version is going to borrow from Tyndale. Uh, the Geneva Bible, uh, which borrows heavily from Tyndale. The Bishop's Bible. Uh, King Henry VIII had put out the Great Bible. So there's five or six different copies of this out there at the time. But the big influence being Tyndale and Geneva, those were in circulation. And Shakespeare, living when he did and where he did, he was required to go to church. You got fined if you didn't go to church. And we know that his father didn't go to church a couple times and got fined. We, we think Shakespeare went to church pretty much all the time. And much of Shakespeare's plays reflect a deep understanding of the Bible, and some of the turns of phrases clearly come from what will become the King James Version of the Bible, either the Geneva Bible, Tyndale Bible before that. Um, so uh, you should know it is a huge impact. The King James Version has made a huge impact on our language. Uh, there's at least a few ways. First of all, there's a lot of biblical phrases that, that got their uh, impetus, got their origin from the King James Version. So phrases like Alpha and Omega, Ancient of Days, My Brother's Keeper, Graven Image, 70 times 7. The way those things are translated, the way those things are interpreted, those become idioms in, uh, in, in our language. We recognize those idioms as being from the Bible. There's a second set of phrases that you may not recognize as being from the Bible because they're not inherently religious, but they also found their origin in the King James uh, Version. Apple of his eye, city on a hill, house divided, two-edged sword, kiss of death, blind leading the blind, eye for an eye, drop in a bucket. All of those come from the King James Version. And then there are a bunch of words that you may not uh, believe this, but they sort of got either their start or they got endorsed. They got pulled. They, they had been around before this. But the fact that they made it into the King James Version of the Bible sort of rescued them from oblivion, and they became common words for us today. So 
these words include adoption, advertise, beautiful, feel, fisherman, glory, horror, housetop, mystery, nurse, suburbs, and others. Uh, and you don't have to take my, you know, you don't have to believe me just because, you know, I'm telling you this. Even though I'm a pastor, you don't have to believe me. Uh, we could look to other surprising sources. Uh, the King James Version of the Bible had its 400th birthday 10 years ago. Lots of different specials and books came out and all kinds of things. National Geographic had a big uh, section on the KJV. And in that, they opened it up. And I've, I've got a quote here um, from this, this. It's the cover story, the Bible of King James. The subheading reads, First printed 400 years ago, it molded the English language, buttressed the powers that be, one of its famous phrases, and yet enshrined the gospel of individual freedom. No other book has given more to the English-speaking world. Or H.L. Mencken, who was a famous, uh, very, uh, he's a, he was a journalist, and he was very caustic to the Christian faith. Uh, he's the guy that said a Puritan is somebody who's worried that Somewhere, someone is having fun. Uh, he had lots of very witty statements uh, against Christianity. He said of the King James uh, Bible, a mine of lordly and incomparable poetry, at once the most stirring and the most touching ever heard. And then, more surprising yet, you have these kind words from uh, Richard Dawkins, who normally... Uh, has nothing good to say about any aspect of religion. Uh, on the King James, he waxes lyrical about it. He asks, how on earth can anyone who cares about language be so ignorant and insensitive as to not appreciate the magnificent tones of the KJV? He then uh, continues, uh, again, sort of freely quoting from King James-isms. Quote, if my words fall on stony ground, if you pass me by as a voice crying in the wilderness, be sure your sin will find you out. Between us there is a great gulf fixed, than you're, and you are a thorn in my flesh. We have come to a parting of the ways. I fear it is a sign of the times. Um, as others have uh, noted, those words uh, are from the King James Version, and many people just find the, the KJV to be this, this uh, treasure trove uh, of rich poetry and insight. So, uh, there's more that might be said about the KJV. Um, I saw one writer suggest that it was the greatest work ever, uh, ever uh, written by a committee. But I'll leave it to you to uh, do your own KJV research on that front. I want to talk about its development. But first, as always, a little bit of historical context. One of my goals for these podcasts is that you get the flow of history so you have a better understanding of why some of the things are, are thought, uh, why, why some of the things you believe, you believe, how they came about, how they were developed. So um, this is the 17th century, and uh, this is lecture four in that era. In the first one, I offered an overview of the whole 1600s right, which is, of course, the 17th century. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you all have been tracking with that. Uh, but I noted in that 
comment in that, in that overview of the 17th century, we, we looked at the epistemological shift that took place uh, from, uh, well, the elevation of reason at that time. And then I, I uh, talked about the scientific revolution, the enlightenment, and then a variety of the political and religious changes. In the second lecture, we focused exclusively on the scientific revolution. Uh, in the third, I did a lecture on the Puritans, uh, more specifically on uh, the group of English separatist Puritans, also called pilgrims, who fled England for Holland and then left Holland for America on board the Mayflower. In that lecture, I reminded you of how the Anglican Church came about and the back and forth that was going on in England between the Catholics and the three main Protestant groups uh, and the way that the, the religious convictions of the king and the queen sort of dictated the religious uh, ground in the land. Everybody was expected to be whatever the king or the queen was. Uh, remember, this is the 17th century. There is no daylight uh, between church and state, between faith and politics. It's all wrapped up together. That division is coming. We're in the 17th century. So we have people living. Uh, we have Europeans living in North America at the time. The United States will be launched out of that group. The United States will, will champion this new concept of a separation uh, of church and state. But that's not in place yet. As a matter of fact, we haven't even yet gotten to the Treaty of Westphalia, which is the treaty that ends the Thirty Years' War, uh, which, is, uh, which is raging. And uh, when that happens, there'll be a little bit more leeway in Europe between um, what you believe and what the, the king or the queen believes. You'll have a little bit more time to change your views and to move and to, to get it right. And there will generally be more uh, latitude and acceptance of other people's views. But we're not there yet. So let me uh, keep moving. In order to appreciate the, the King James version of the Bible, I think you need to understand what has been happening in Europe and in particular in England at this moment. So we're obviously on the other side of the Protestant Reformation, Luther and all that. We're also on the other side of the Act of Supremacy. So that's when the English Parliament sort of got behind King Henry VIII and said, yes, there's gonna, the church is going to report to uh, the, the monarch. Um, King Henry will rule at his death. His son, Edward, will take over. So Henry is going to lead the church in England out of the Catholic Church and establish a Protestant Church of England. He's not super Protestant at that time. When his son, Edward, takes over under the uh, sort of direction and tutelage of Cramner, remember, wrote the Book of Common Prayer, Edward will be much more avowedly, uh, dogmatically Protestant. When Edward dies, uh, his sister, Mary, this would be Bloody Mary. This is, uh, this is the, the woman who's very Catholic. She's going to come to power. She is going to reestablish Catholicism in the land. She's going to put a number of Protestant uh, reformers and leaders to death. She will rule for five years. When she passes away, Queen Elizabeth I comes to power. She is going to rule for 45 years during which time she is going to return England to Protestantism. She is going to bring some uh, measure 
of stability to the era. Now, it's not a lot of stability. It's a pretty contested reign that Elizabeth has. Uh, and you have to remember, um, <laughs> with Elizabeth, nobody really likes her. It's just that nobody acts out of line. And she's, she sort of toes the middle line. So the Catholics don't like where she's gone. Many of them leave the country. The Puritans, so the, the, the middle-of-the-road Anglicans like her, but the, the, the Anglicans that want to purify Anglicism, called the Puritans, they don't like her. She lets them, um, the phrase that is used about this is she lets them bark as long as they don't bite. Um, and, and again, you also have to remember, as I said, Shakespeare uh, had to go to church. So this isn't a, you've got to stay church and if you don't like it, you can stay home. No, you had to go to church and church had to be whatever the monarch had said church was going to be. And the monarchy controlled the church in part through bishops. The bishops were the one that chose the pastors. The pastors are, are reporting not to a congregation. They're reporting back to the bishops, back up to the, you know, to the pope, in the case of the Roman Catholic Church, to the king, in the, in the case of the state church. And um, so you've got people that don't like what is being forced upon them. Um, so... Um, Elizabeth is going to rule for 45 years, and then when she dies in 1603, King James is going to come into power. So, King James, when he comes to power, had already been a king. So he has been the king in Scotland. Uh, now, Scotland doesn't have much money. It's not a huge, powerful position like being the king of England is, uh, but he had, he had been the king of England, excuse me, the king of Scotland since the time that he was one. Uh, and now he's uh, age of 27. Uh, he becomes the, maybe 37, if I'm doing my math quickly right here. Anyway, he's not one. Uh, and I think he's 37. So he's going to come to power uh, in 1604, get tapped in 1603, gets coronated, I think, in 1604 and he is going to rule for 22 years. He inherits a number of challenges. So you can imagine, these transitions of government don't happen very often, and when they happen, lots of people sort of try and rush and fill any temporary vacuum that might be there. Um, and so he is coming into power. So just so you can appreciate the, the, the dynamics that are going on here. So he is inheriting the, the, the throne from... Um, from his uh, aunt or his cousin, she had had his mother put to death. I think it's his aunt. So she had his mother put to death. Um, and, and his immediate successor, Charles I, his son, Charles I is going to be put to death by the people. Charles I is not going to navigate things as adeptly as Elizabeth and uh, James were able to. Charles is going to end up with a, with a civil war on his hand between, in one sense, two different types of Anglicans. And it's going to be a bad civil war. And uh, he's going to lose his life in the midst of it. So um, things are tense. When he comes to power, James, religious matters are tense. So the Anglican Church has been reestablished after, uh, after Mary. The Anglican Church is in power, 
but the power is divided. The Anglican bishops now have to contend with these rebellious Protestant groups, most notably the Puritans and the Calvinists, who uh, questioned the power of the Anglican bishops. Uh, the division is seen in part by the fact that there are two Bibles that have the most, um, most use. Um, this is, uh, the one Bible is the Geneva Bible, which was made in 1557 by some Protestants living in exile in Geneva when Mary, the Catholic Mary, Bloody Mary, uh, Mary Queen of Scots, when she uh, is, is in power. And um, so this is a Bible that the people liked, but that the bishops and the king don't like because it has some, um, it has some knocks against sort of the idea of a state-run church. So what, what you're going to see, what you need to understand, I guess, is that there's a lot of subtle little differences that can happen in a translation that lead you to head towards one path or another. For instance, 400 times in the Geneva Bible, the word tyrant is used. So um, who's a tyrant? Well, a king is likely a tyrant, and so... King James does not like the word tyrant being thrown out. Uh, additionally, the word presbyteros, uh, in a Greek word, gets translated in the Geneva Bible as elders, which sort of stand in contrast to bishops or priests. So they don't like, uh, James doesn't like that word. He doesn't like the fact that the word ekklesia, which is translated uh, church, normally, is translated congregations by the Geneva Bible. Uh, and what he really doesn't like about the Geneva Bible is all the, the notes in the margins, sort of like a study Bible that, that there's all these notes at the, at the bottom of the page or in the margins that, that, are, that are helping you understand supposedly what is meant by what these passages mean. So, uh, those are very Puritan in their orientation uh, they argue against a state church, and uh, James does not like them. So the other Bible that is in circulation is the Bishop's Bible. <laughs> Who likes the Bishop's Bible? Uh, wow, you don't get many points if you get this one right. The Bishops like the Bishop's Bible. Uh, the Anglican Church likes the Bishop's Bible. Who doesn't like it? Well, the Puritans don't like it. And for that matter, the people don't like it. So if you see old copies of the Geneva Bible, they're often very marked up and worn. Uh, the pages are sort of greasy because they've been used so much. You find old copies of the Bishop's Bible, and they look pretty brand new because no one was actually reading them. And what James recognized is that the, uh, the Bishop's Bible was not a great Bible. It, it was uneven at best. So it had been pulled together very hurriedly, uh, and there's some things where it's just, it just really sort of misses. So, for instance, a famous um, miss by uh, the Bishop's Bible in Ecclesiastes 11.1, 1, uh, which, which you have likely heard, uh, cast thy bread upon the waters. Um, they, it's translated in the Bishop's Bible. It reads, lay thy bread on wet faces. <sighs> okay, well, that's clear. Um, so... All of this to say, you got two Bibles. James is coming in, there are two Bibles, and neither of them are great. 
uh, by, by the vantage point from the perspective of King James. So this is important because as James is traveling from Edinburgh to, uh, to England, he is stopped by the Puritans. And he's not even in office, and already he is being stopped. These Puritans, they're, they're sort of trying to get to him before he's coronated. Uh, the Puritans, they want reform. And they give him a document uh, called the Millinery Petition that's been signed by over a 1,000 pastors. This represents about 10% uh, of England's clergy. And it's filled with their grievances, and it is also, um, it makes a number of requests. So it, it's looking at four different areas that it wants to see reform. Church services, church ministers, church maintenance, and church discipline. It also sets forth a number of very specific objections um, that uh, I've got to think sound pretty frivolous to us today, but were serious matters to the Puritans. Um, they did not want anyone using a wedding ring. Okay, I have one on. I'm not a good Puritan, obviously. They don't like the sign of the cross. Uh, they don't like priests wearing vestments, colorful, um, you know, robes and things. And they don't like uh, bishops in general. So they're hoping that King James, who's from Scotland, which has a Presbyterian form of government, so not an Episcopal form of government, so Presbyterian means you have elders. Um, there's really sort of three different forms of church government. You can have bishops. Think about it this way. Who's, who's appointing leaders? Bishops, elders, or the congregation? And lots of churches now have sort of um, uh, cross sections of all three. But all that to say, James is coming out of a, a more Presbyterian form of government, a more Calvinistic form of government. They're hoping he is going to be sympathetic with their requests. Um, as it turns out, they were wrong. So James takes the petition very seriously. So they stop him as he's traveling. He meets with them, and he agrees to call a conference. Not a very unique uh, thing for a... Um, a president or a king to do. Let's have a uh, consultation on this. And he says, in a month, we will all meet uh, at the Hampton Court Palace. So James has now come in to inherit, among other things, a 1,000-room estate outside of London. So he says, let's meet there, and, um, and we'll meet there in a month. And when they meet in a month, it becomes immediately obvious that uh, James is going to side with the the more um, Anglo-Catholic side of the Anglicans, then he is going to side with the Puritan side of the Anglicans. So um, this is uh, significant in one sense. This is like the first conference that you've got uh, anywhere since, I think, uh, the Council of Nicaea when Constantine opens that council uh, by making an address. So in a similar way, you have, um, you have James making an address to this gathering. And he sort of is pretty clear that he thinks the Presbyterian form of government, where you got all these pastors uh, reporting directly up, you know, sort of operating independently of each other and sort of not, you know, tethered in more 
sort of uh, layered direct reporting up to the king. He thinks that's a nightmare. Uh, as a matter of fact, he has a famous line, and he says that uh, the Presbyterian form of church leadership goes together with the monarchy as well as God and the devil. Uh, no bishop, no king. So he is saying there has to be bishops. Um, and uh, I share this in part to say that uh, the Puritans make a number of requests of King James. He denies them all. At the end, one Puritan suggests that they need a new translation of the Bible because uh, those that are, the, that are in circulation uh, have problems. They're corrupt and not answerable to the truth of the original, is what he said. And so James proves open to this idea. This is an opportunity for him to, uh, to get rid of the Geneva Bible and uh, also to not have to fall back on the Bishop's Bible. And so in light of that, um, James sees value in having a new authorized translation of the Bible. He wants a united kingdom. In order to have a united kingdom, he has to have a united church. And uh, he realizes this, and so this is going to give him a chance to get that. And it also gives him a chance to sort of throw a bone uh, to the Puritans. So he forms a translation uh, task force. By uh, June, the end of June 1604, he has approved 54 people to serve um, on, a, on a, a variety of different groups. He's organized them into um, six different companies. Uh, each are going to work on a different part of the Bible. Uh, there's going to be odd numbers on each of these um, committees, and they're going to they're do their work, and then they're going to pass it up through the ranks, and various people will have to sign off on it before it gets to him. He's the final one who approves it. These 54 people, among other things, there is a diversity of theological opinions. So you've got, you, you've got more, again, more on the Anglo-Catholic side. You've got more on the Puritan uh, side. You have people who are scholars. And uh, it's really quite a remarkable collection of, of uh, men. It's uh, all men. Uh, but they bring massive intellectual horsepower to this. Uh, to the work that they're going to do. And they are going to be in ways that modern translations don't get. Um, they are going to pay attention not just to the words and the translation, getting accuracy to the text itself. They are going to pay attention to the way things sound. Um, one scholar would say that they're going to Hebraize. Um, the English as opposed to anglicizing the Hebrew. So the, the cadence of words, the cadence of the poetry, the word order, all of these things they are going to be paying attention to. Um, he has them, um, before they get started, he lays out some ground rules. Not many, but he wants them to be conservative. This is not a theological statement, not a political statement. It's, it's a, more of a literary statement. So he says, look, there's some good, there's a lot of good translation work that has taken place in previous English Bibles. Don't feel like you got to start over. Uh, make a good book better. And so make the book better, I think is what he says. And so they're going to look at the Geneva Bible, the Bishop's Bible, the Tyndale Bible, the Great Bible. They're going to look at all of these things and they're going to bring a lot of that forward. This will mean, in part, that the, that the KJV is going to sound old when it's new. 
Right? They're going to have the these and the thous, and they're going to have a, 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 a style that is 100 years old when it's translated. Now, they do this for, for two reasons that might surprise you. Uh, first of all, the these and the thous are actually the way you, um, you made the language common. So if you studied German, you might know that, um, you know, I studied German in high school and some in college, and you had to learn all these, uh, you had to learn all these uh, der, die, and das, uh, every, every word. You had to know the, whether it was a masculine, feminine, or neuter term so that you had the right, uh, what is that, article, preposition, <laughs> I don't know. But you had to have the right case. Uh, and so you spend forever memorizing these things so that you will sound educated and formal. You get to Germany, nobody uses those. They just say, duh. I mean, that, was a, that was a rude awakening. Like, I've spent hours memorizing uh, that, that bicycle is neuter, uh, but this other thing that I think which should be feminine is masculine, you know, and then nobody uses them. But, but there was this high German. Well, there was a high English, but when they decided to, to sort of elevate and to move more democratically, they just pulled everybody up. So the more formal English became the more informal English. And so they wanted, James wants the Bible to be something that feels accessible to everybody. He wants it to have more of a common language. The term that gets used is a vulgar language. He wants it to be vulgar not 21st century understanding of vulgar, but the, sixth, the 17th century uh, understanding of vulgar. So it's common. The other reason that they went with this 100-year-old translation is because they knew language changed quickly. And the way for something to sound really dated quickly was to try and make it sound very contemporary. So as soon as something, um, is, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of words that if, if you're still using the word, I don't know, groovy, right? I mean, oh my goodness, that's 60 years old. That's horrible. Now, maybe when it's 160 years old, it won't have quite that kind of pushback. So they are going to, uh, they're going to borrow from that. He wants it to be a conservative. So don't redo everything. He wants it to be easy to read so common people can understand it. And uh, finally, he wants there to be no notes in the margin. So no commentary, no theological interpretation is uh, to happen with this. Um, he is uh, particularly anxious about some of these things because, again, the, the Geneva Bible had so many of them. That, had, that he felt like were anti-royal comments that needed to be taken out. So um, James gives these, uh, these rules to the translators, and he sets them off on their work, and, uh, and remarkably, they do a brilliant job. Uh, most people recognize the translation uh, of the King James uh, version to be a colossal achievement. Um, so, it's remarkable because you have a group of elite scholars working together. They have to agree. They're writing something for a largely illiterate public. The document needs to, um, needs to reinforce a clear-cut royal political agenda, and yet at the same time, 
be approved by all kinds of groups of people uh, up and down the line, and it has to sound good, which it does. Now, again, it's, it's a little stilted to us, but when you listen to it, um, it, it can really sing. So the, the writer of the National Geographic article that I mentioned earlier uh, says of the text, it is, quote, majestic yet intimate, the voice of the universe somehow heard in the innermost part of the ear. So they translate uh, and they get this translation. And this comes out in 1611. Now, it's not immediately uh, an overnight success. Um, James is going to ask every church in England to have a copy, which was not a small ask because it's expensive to, um, to, to get copies of books at that point. But he doesn't force them to only use it. He just puts it and makes it available to them. The, the translation of the King James is what is going to be dropped into the Book of Common Prayer uh, that people are using. Not, not the Psalms. There's a few parts that, uh, that don't. They're going to stay uh, what they had been before. But um, for about the next 50 years, the Geneva Bible and the King James Bible are going to be the two popular ones. And then the Geneva Bible sort of is, is going to have lost ground and the King James is going to come on and it's going to be dominant for the next few hundred years. It's going to dominate uh, through the first half of the 18th century. It's basically unchallenged. And by the 19th century, it's the most widely printed book in the history of book printing. Um, now, it's going to fall into disfavor in the 20th century because it's going to be viewed as antiquated. And uh, at that point, you're going to get the revised standard version. So the, the King James version, it's called the King James in, in America. It's called the authorized version in England. And then you're going to get now the revised uh, standard version in 1952, uh, and that's going to come on. And then uh, in, I think it's in the late 70s, early 80s, that we get the NIV, which becomes uh, the second most popular. Uh, however, um, it has remained popular. It's the most popular English translation in uh, the world today. And it still is used uh, in many mainline churches. And there's a... <laughs> On the, on the far right, there is a fundamentalist um, uh, advocacy for the King James Version. I have a friend from high school who's big into King James, wants to argue that it's the only translation you should look at. And in fact, there is a King James-only group that basically says the King James Version of the Bible is the only Bible you should ever read. All the other Bibles uh, are, are wrong, and they're from Satan, and they're, you know, they're, they're horrible. Uh, my youngest son just ran into one of these uh, KJV-only guys this week, and he, was, he called me to tell me about it. Um, and I, I found in my files um, from about 20 years ago an article in the Chicago Tribune where they were, um, I guess it would have been 10 years ago, the anniversary of the King James Version, 400th anniversary, and they were interviewing a pastor in like um, Pal Palatine or Mount Prospect or something. But he, he said, I thought this was a brilliant quote, he said, using any other version of the Bible makes less sense than trying to shave with a banana. <laughs> okay. Hey, made me smile. So uh, if you don't want to shave with a banana, you stay with the KJV. Um, by the way, the KJV was updated in 19... 
1982. Uh, one of uh, the Trinity professors, uh, Barry Beitzel, worked on that, so I heard a little bit about his work on uh, their efforts to try and change some things in the KJV. So there are a few other things to note here uh, of, of perhaps of interest. Uh, there, are some, there are some marks against it. On the comical side, uh, there have been some famous misprints. Uh, one of them is the uh, Rue 315. Uh, some of them have a she where they're supposed to be a he. Uh, um, in 1612, there's a version of the, of the King James. Instead of saying that princes have persecuted me, it says printers have persecuted me. Got to wonder if maybe the printers were behind that. And then there's the famous Wicked Bible where they left the word not out of the commandment against adultery. So instead of saying you shall not commit adultery, it says you shall commit adultery. And then later, I guess, or yeah, later, because it's uh, that's Exodus in Deuteronomy 5.24, which is supposed to read, the greatness of the Lord they have, the great ass of the Lord. So that printer was fined 300 pounds, which apparently at that time was a lot of money. Don't know if he thought it was worth it or not. Uh, on a more serious note, the King James Version of the Bible, um, while it is seen as helping eventually to eradicate slavery, it was used in endorsement of slavery because they made the decision to translate the Greek word doulos, which now we translate as slave. They translated it as servant. And so long after it was understood that slavery was wrong uh, or somewhat scandalous, people who had slaves would call their slaves servants, and that seems to have allowed slavery to be perpetuated a bit longer. And then another mark against it is that it's based on uh, the Textus Receptus, which is a 10th century um, uh, 10th century Greek document, and uh, it's just not one of the better um, Greek manuscripts. There's far older Greek manuscripts, and so there's some mistakes that get in because of that. Um, you should know that although it's authorized, it's called the authorized version, we don't actually know who authorized it. It does not appear to have been King James. It appears to have been this Privy Council that authorized it. I don't know who the Privy Council is, but... Um, that would have been, it would have been authorized uh, probably around 1611, and their records between 1600 and 1613 were all destroyed in a fire in 1618, and so we're not sure whether it was the Privy Council or not. But it gets called the authorized version. We don't know who authorized it. I didn't, by the way. Um, in contrast to the Geneva Bible and the Bishop's Bible, with, which were both extensively illustrated, the Bishop's Bible, by the way, had a big picture of Queen Elizabeth on it, so you knew that it was very much uh, a pro-monarch uh, Bible. Uh, the King James Version did not have any pictures. It did have elaborate, uh, often first pages of each book that were, there was a lot of calligraphy and a lot of artwork there. Um, and then from the early 19th century, the authorized version has remained almost completely unchanged, is a, is a claim that is made by many that for 300 years, uh, this, this Bible was not changed at all. That's just simply not true. You just have to know where all the changes took place. Furthermore, lots of people who changed it 
like um, John Wesley is going to change. John Wesley is going to start the Methodist Church, uh, and he is going to change the King James Version of the Bible to make it more uh, readily accessible in the U.S. Uh, in, in the 1700s. And he's just not going to call it the King James Version of the Bible, but he's going to change it. So there were lots of changes that have taken place. So um, what else can and should be said? Uh, again, it's had an enormous impact on culture. So uh, Abraham Lincoln is going to be quoting from uh, King James Version. Handel's Messiah, the, the lyrics there are going to come from the King James Version. Uh, authors from Herman Melville to Ernest Hemingway are going to reference it. Martin Luther King is going to have memorized much of the book of Isaiah in the King James Version, so it finds its way into uh, his speeches. So, um, so let me end by saying, as I promised, um, can be helpful to know a little bit about some of the backdrop of the history of the development of this particular version of the Bible. So I'm glad to share uh, what I have learned over the years about it. Uh, all of that information pales in comparison to the information that is in the Bible, not just the King James Version, but many of the more um, easily readable translations today. So uh, that's what I most am interested in, is not that you read about the King James Version of the Bible, but that you would read the King James Version of the Bible, or that you would read some other translation uh, of the Bible. The Bible, I believe, is the Word of God. It, uh, it has a power that is unique to itself, uh, inspired by God, and uh, it should guide and direct us. So, um, I hope that's all interesting about the King James Version of the Bible. Read the Bible in whatever translation you enjoy. Have a good day.